Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a handful of perspectives on culture. This week, the Monaghan Asylum Soviet becomes an opera from Michael Gallen. Chris Morash decodes the messages of the first transatlantic cable, composer Eugene Berman on his avant-choir work Lamentations, and waking the museum at a conference in Dublin. But first to Monaghan, where the brief candle of the Monaghan Asylum Soviet is the inspiration for Elsewhere, the new opera from Monaghan composer Michael Gallen. The events of 1919 at the institution, where a strike led to an occupation and an improvised society and system of care, had not until now been as celebrated as the Limerick Soviet, which among other things inspired Guna Nua's recent Bread Not Profits. But for Gallen and his co-librettists, the events of the Monaghan Asylum Soviet have at least as much to tell us about the choices that shaped the Ireland we know. Gallen spoke to us about what he calls the imagined future of our forgotten past. It's a relatively little-known story, even locally, in one of the history books that I was looking at. There was a very short reference to this Monaghan Asylum Soviet, where the staff of the Monaghan Asylum had gone on strike and had locked themselves in. I would have always heard of the Limerick Soviet and thought that that was the first, you know, major event of that sort of left-wing radicalism around the time of the revolution. But actually, it took a lot of conversations with academics and with different people with locally to get to know the story a little bit more. stood out to me was Padre O'Donnell was in Monaghan at the time when these asylum workers were on strike and they asked him to come in and lead their strike. It was him that convinced them that it was an idea to perhaps lock themselves in so that they could gain leverage over the authorities without compromising on patient care. And then when they did barricade the gates and raise the red flag over the hospital and declare themselves an independent Soviet commune, O'Donnell also incorporated the patients into the day-to-day operation of the Soviet. What made the story so interesting to me was that it was quite a departure in terms of mental health care for its time and would be considered quite radical even now. And the thought kept on coming back to me of how it must have felt to have been a patient in the hospital at the time of the Soviets and to be included and to be given this sense of worth and then subsequently to spend, you know, decades in that much more traditional story of Irish institutional care where people were locked away and forgotten about and their voices weren't part of the fabric of society. The underlying arc in the opera, the story is told through the visions and reminiscences of a patient named Celine who decades later is still sort of locked into the moment of the Soviet and believes herself to be the person that leads the Soviet and uses that little part of herself as her means of accessing freedom and autonomy. I sometimes have become frustrated in the past by the way that the various disciplines and creative processes in the making of a piece like an opera can be quite separate for long periods and then sort of are merged together in production at the end. 
and I was very interested in the idea of following a model that was more akin to say contemporary dance or you know even contemporary music theater sometimes in the way that different processes can evolve at the same time so with Dylan Coburn Gray and Anne-Rainy Curran who are my co-librettists on the project quite early on I spoke to them about the project spoke to them about the concept that I had had that this story would be told from the perspective of a patient rather than being a historical account And then I suppose we operated a little bit like a writer's room where we would come together, talk about the different themes, talk about the arc of the story. And then we'd all go off and sketch out different scenes or even poetic texts or just thoughts on the story. It's interesting 100 years later, you know, to look back at what people imagined the country that they were fighting for would become. And I suppose to use that as a litmus test for where we're at today. And especially in a moment like now where we're reopening society again to think about what a truly cared centre society could look like and whether we're achieving that. You know, whether when we talk about our most vulnerable citizens and protecting them, that's really something that is actually written into the fabric of our constitution and our society. You know, I would have thought up until quite recently that as you go back through the decades in Ireland, the politics becomes more and more conservative. Having been born in the 80s and grown up in the 90s, there's that sense of us constantly moving forward from, from the past. But actually, when you look 100 years ago, even people who were these people who were on strike in a rural town in Ireland were perfectly capable of imagining that they could live in a Soviet society or that they could organize in a different way. And I think that's really telling. And we should acknowledge that as a part of our culture and our history as well and affirm it. What O'Donnell did in the time of the Soviets, you know, which was to basically to have everybody wear the same uniform, whether they be workers or patients, and, you know, having people involved in dances and football matches and in the defence of the Soviet against the RIC, the difference between people was acknowledged but wasn't seen as a means of stratifying society. And so in a way, the Soviet became a little society of its own for that period of time. And I think that the tragedy is that after you know achieving everything that they needed to achieve, you know they managed to get pay equity between men and women. They radically improved the, the workers' conditions. You know, ten years later, when you look at the history of the hospitals, everything has reverted to how it was prior to 1919. Composer Michael Gallen there and his opera. Elsewhere runs at the Abbey Theatre Dublin from November 15th to 20th. Now, what can the first transatlantic cable tell us about inequality in the contemporary world? The first messages sent via the Valencia to Newfoundland telegraph cable in 1858 are often celebrated as marking a moment when the world changed, when time and space were zapped and the planet made small and interconnected. But does that kind of tech mythology also zap important characters, ignoring the real lives of people on both sides of the Atlantic? Seamus he 
Mulvaney, Professor of Irish Writing at TCD, Chris Morash, spoke to Culturefile about the wire that changed the world, a piece of which he had close to hand. It's, it's copper copper wire, um, bundles of copper wire, with, uh, then a kind of a protective uh, sort of steel covering over the top of it. I mean, actually, I have a chunk of, of the cable here on my desk. Um, <laughs> there, were, there were bits of it retrieved from Valencia Bay, and uh, enterprising people have sold them. Um, but at the time, actually, there were bits of the cable became almost like sacred relics. I mean, Tiffany's in New York made walking sticks in which you had bits of cable in them. Piece of the true cross, kind of. Piece of the true <laughs> cross, yeah. You had letter openers with handles made from the cable. What we're marking here is is the laying of the first transatlantic telegraph cable, uh, which occurred in August of 1858. Basically, two ships, the Agamemnon and the Niagara, started from the center of the Atlantic Ocean and sailed opposite sides, one to Valencia Bay in, in Kerry, the other to Hearts Content in Newfoundland. And when that cable was connected, within a few days, it was possible for the first time ever to send a message across the Atlantic almost instantaneously. So these are Morse code messages. The very first messages after the technicians had had their, their, their ta- chance to, to play with it uh, were from Queen Victoria to President Buchanan of the United States and then from President Buchanan back. So they were fairly ceremonial messages. The popular sense of this was that suddenly everybody could communicate across the Atlantic Ocean. And in fact, that wasn't the case. Messages were, were expensive. They were, they were unreliable. I mean, that first 1858 cable really only lasted about 30 days. The signals were so weak that the technicians kept having to jack up the voltage. And eventually they just burnt the cable out. So, you know, it's, it, it, it was a bit like, you know, what we've all experienced with Zoom over the past 18 months, where everything's going fine. And then suddenly, you know, everything would freeze. So, you know, you, you crank it up again. <laughs> but one of the ideas that they had was that it was going to destroy time and space or annihilate it altogether, which I guess is kind of marketing speak in a way, as well as a sort of philosophical thing. It's both. I mean, one of the great promoters of this, I mean, Cyrus W. Field, the man who was primarily the kind of entrepreneur behind this, uh, was a master of combining kind of big philosophical and theological ideas um, with marketing. You know, so the idea that, you know, when they laid the cable, there was a there was a kind of plateau across the Atlantic that took the cable very nicely. Um, he, he, he interpreted this that God had actually shaped the bottom of the Atlantic precisely so a cable could be laid across it. And there were sermons preached um, all up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States, particularly. There were sermons preached when the cable came ashore, praising God for having made this possible. And, and not in a general way, but a very specific way, that this was part of God's plan to unite humanity. But the idea that time and space is annihilated is a very interesting one, because we take this for granted that um, you know that that we can be you know here in Ireland and talking to somebody on the other side of the world, and it doesn't even seem strange to us. But you think of what it must have been like the first time that it was possible to communicate between London and New York. It is as if the Atlantic had just disappeared. Um, so there was there was a euphoric sense about this. 
it had a huge effect on 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 on, on the flow of news. Um, the use was primarily commercial. Ordinary individuals couldn't afford to send cables, uh, but it increased the amount of news um, exponentially. And, and in places, it kind of leveled out the planet in some ways in terms of news. Uh, the the proprietors of the main newspaper in St. John's, Newfoundland, um, which subsequently was known as the Telegraph, uh, basically said, look, we're going to have the same news now that they have in London because we've got the cable. Um, and, and this was you know, published in the newspaper on the day the cable came ashore. Henceforth, our readers can expect much more in the way of news. Um, and you see that actually in newspapers. Like you see things like the Irish Times in the 1860s, you know, giving traffic reports for Calcutta just because <laughs> they can. And, and you point out that uh, there was also a sort of division uh, happening around the same time where there were all these speculators using this kind of highfalutin language about annihilating time and space. But there was reality around the cable at both ends of the cable in particular. Yeah, this is the thing that really fascinates me about the Valencia site. And I didn't get it until I went to Valencia because I'd written about the Telegraph before that. And when I went to Valencia and you stand where the cable house, the cable, the Telegraph station is there in Valencia Island, you're directly across from where the largest workhouse in Munster had been during the famine in Cajar Savin. And it had been actually roofed with slate from Valencia Island, the same slate that was on the Telegraph house and you realize this is 1858 there are still people in that workhouse um there, there were still something like you know a few years earlier there were over 200,000 people in workhouses in 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 Munster alone and and then on the other end of the cable in heart's content uh accounts of Newfoundland from the 1850s and 1860s give accounts of you know people literally starving uh when the fishery was poor and, and retreating into the wilderness and living in what were called tilts, which was a kind of hut made out of bits of tree, um, you know, tree and moss. So on one hand, you had people literally living in mud huts in places around, in, in, in that area around in Kerry, in, in, in that western part of Kerry. And then on the other end, you had people living in these kind of wooden huts in the woods. So you had the absolute epitome of modernity in the cable. And at either end of the cable, you had people living in conditions that were more or less medieval. And it sort of foreshadows that uh, that same dynamic in our own world when we, we talk about a sort of globalised instantaneous communication and somehow divorce people and their bodies from that. For me, that's why the cable is in the cable, the sites of the cable are so important, because they force a kind of ethical remembrance that when we're celebrating the triumphs of technology and the triumphs of modernity, we always have to remember that the, the disasters of history accompany them, are beside them and occupy the same spaces. And that's true of our world as much as it was true of the world of the 1850s and 1860s. Chris Marash there on The Wire That Changed the World, extending the choir next on the Culture File Weekly with some help from composer Eugene Berman. Berman's work, Lamentations, brings together ecclesiastical Latin and strange rants, using not only every trick in the choral book, but some that Berman's in the process of adding. Lamentations got its Irish premiere this week from Chamber Choir Ireland under the direction of Neil Schweckendiek. But before that, Eugene Berman spoke to Culture. Your file. 
this piece of it originally uh, came about a little bit strangely because I was just I was getting into writing for choir. It was quite new for me, and it was something that I wanted to do and didn't have. It's it's a bit tricky to get experience writing for choir because you need a choir. There's no good plug-in for that yet, then. No, and and I I really have a policy of only working with live musicians anyway. It's it's for me it's very very important to have this relationship. So Neil Schreckendy kind of championed this piece a little bit. It was one of the when I started writing it, it was still a bit abstract, and and I was just getting into choir, and he encouraged me to uh, to make more from it, and and it grew into something that's really you know quite close to 20 minutes long. It's appeared on my first uh, CD with the Helsinki Chamber Choir. You are known for um, some funky choices of text, but there you went for Latin text. Well, in fact, this piece is not fully in Latin, so there is a little funky uh, point uh, in the in the final movement. There is uh, the inclusion of a text from, well, it's called the Prayer of Manasseh, which is a, an apocryphal text. Uh, it's listed in some uh, some different versions of the Bible, but in most it was it was uh, excised. Uh, and that one is in English, actually, and it's supposed to be delivered in the voice of a kind of a, uh, almost an apocalyptic street preacher. Do not give me over to be tried with you, oh my God. They are conspiring against me. They tell lies to me. So I've kept my tradition of funky text, I think. But in general, uh, <laughs> the, 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 this piece ha- is uh, indeed, it's in Latin, and, and I wanted to approach writing religious music for choir, which is perhaps the most standard thing you can do as a composer writing for choir, um, from a different perspective and actually to take uh, for once a text that is very, uh, very much part of the, it's part of the liturgy, it's part of the the, the sort of the continuum of, of uh, vocal work and try to put a new perspective on it. So sometimes, um, often in my work, the text is, is coming from very strange places, from Twitter, from um, European Union kind of, legal texts and and various other things but here i i thought perhaps the music can can do something that the text is not used to what the voice can do unlike any other instrument is really really boundless uh it's a matter of seeing beyond your one's own limitations as a, as a performer, as a singer, also as a composer, and, and seeing what's possible. And I've just been very lucky to work with singers who have been willing to do that, and also conductors who can explain to singers, um, this doesn't seem like it's possible, but actually you can try it and, and see, see where it leads to. Uh, and so with each piece, I'm pushing this further and further. Perhaps that, that narrows down the, the pool, but I think the pool is always expanding. And for me, one of the exciting things about contemporary music is instead of making things more complex or more... Uh, somehow more, uh, I don't know, academic or something, um, we can make things more expressive. And one of those ways is extending the possibility of the voice. But notation is always behind, uh, historically what uh, composers want to do and I think it's okay f- for it to be like that um, it's actually good that notation is behind because it means that we are still there's still something for us to find that we haven't found yet I'm working on something right now which is for the Gulbenkian Choir which is a, a choir of 70 to 100 singers in, in Portugal in Lisbon and so I wanted them to do this half whistle 
effect for a long time, which is like this harmony oscillating. The way you do that is is just sort of do a trill over your lips with the whistle and everything. And how can you notate these things, which are just basically very, very subtle projections of the voice with, with, you know, I would say like hand percussion or something. But, you know, once it gets notated and if a choir can do it or if an ensemble can do it, then it eventually becomes standard notation by somebody if it, if it really works. And, and I think the point is that we're sort of guessing what might make sense. Uh, it's like inventing hieroglyphics, you know, it's, uh, it's neologisms. And then we just kind of hope that they, they get picked up. Uh, and if they don't, then we go back to the drawing board and create something that maybe is closer. But my, my perspective is that simpler is always better. Fewer explanations, always better. So I'm looking for symbols that, that can express something for a choir, even something as simple as doing a tremolo over your lips while you're whistling, uh, which is a simple sound to explain by conversation, but is actually just there, there isn't a symbol for that in music yet. We just try to find something that works. So in Lamentations, actually, there's a lot of use of whistle. I, I've started I, my, my journey of whistle, um, which I would really like to end. It's sort of an addiction on the whistle. <laughs> uh, and I hope I will end it. I keep, I keep telling myself there's no nicotine patch for this, unfortunately. The nicotine patch is when it sounds really bad in a premiere, then probably that will end. What's appealing about the whistle? Uh, what's appealing about it, you know, because it extends, extends the range of the choir higher. So you can only write for a soprano so high. And, and uh, of course, then, if you want to write something in the really high register, then you're leaving out the men, generally. And um, if, you, if you can use the whistle and, and they can really tune it and harmonize it, then you can create uh, harmonies that are much, much higher than, than what we expect is a, is a choir range. So in Lamentations, for example, you will hear uh, in, in the second movement and most quite a bit in the second movement the use of whistle not as a kind of an effect of you know um hey you <laughs> but but actually as as a way of extending the range of the choir higher and for me that's just a really interesting thing to do because otherwise the choir is limited right we um the human voice only goes so high except in maybe in some very special singers in opera but if you can add add harmony with the whistle you have actually the range of the piccolo the flute and the high violin that we just didn't have before Eugene Berman there on his Lamentations, which got its Irish premiere from Chamber Choir Ireland this week. And finally this time, Narrating the Nation was a two-day international conference organised between NCAD and the National Museum of Ireland in Dublin recently, gathering curators, critics and academics from around the world. They met to think about the role of the museum in a world increasingly driven to own up to the real forces that shape what's collected and what's seen. One of the speakers who came to Dublin was Clémentine de Lys, Global Humanities Professor of the History of Art at the University of Cambridge. She explores the borders of curatorial and contemporary art practice and was previously director of the Weltkulturen Museum in Frankfurt, where she instituted a transdisciplinary lab and began to create a post-ethnographic museum, as she told Culture Files Louise Williams. I coined the term, it's a bit, a bit excessive to say, but I started speaking about the post-ethnographic when I took over a museum in Germany in 2010, and I knew that it had a, an important collection from around the world, including a contemporary art collection from Africa in particular, 
and that uh, even though I had studied anthropology, that really we were moving into a, a, a period in time where the ethnographic, this kind of focus on the, on the ethnos, on the logic of ethnicity, was no longer really a good idea. You have this inquisitive intellectual mind that asks questions and analyzes, and you took this job in a big institution with an immense collection, much of it with very sort of dubious origins, and you talked about a kind of a pattern of violence over some of the artefacts. Was it a fit that you knew was going to be challenging? Well, first I have to correct you. It wasn't a big institution with a huge collection. It was one of maybe 20 ethnological museums in Germany. They're all over the place. Every main town has its own ethnological museum. They had a lot to do with the anthropology of trade, teaching traders in Germany how how to negotiate other cultures. And I knew that the collection, you know, that were about 70,000 objects in there. And I knew that there was a lot of media, a lot of photography and video and film. But I also knew that I would change it. I mean, I, I couldn't come in and pretend to be a German anthropologist. I didn't even study in Germany. And anthropology, like art history too, it has its own schools of thought, its own institutes, its own paradigms. So I was told that I was the ninth director of this museum, and I believed at the time that they expected from me to bring a new approach, a new model, a new paradigm. And that's what I tried to do. When I got there, first of all, the museum was in three villas, 19th century villas. I knew that I wanted to restore the original nature of this place, which was to be domestic. It made sense to have residencies where people could live. It made sense to cook in the museum. I wanted to provide a, a location, which could have called it a workshop as well, where ideas would be developed and for vulnerability in many ways, the vul vulnerability of the of the different artifacts that don't even have authorship, wasn't written down at the time, um, that were often taken in, in extremely violent circumstances, and to negotiate new meanings around them and also to bring people in who were actually very, very interested in working with these artifacts and doing it on site. I could have, of course, got people to come, take photographs, go back to their studios or to their apartments and work on something and then deliver the result. But that was less interesting than saying, okay, a museum can also be about production. You mentioned something this evening which I thought was interesting. You know, the people who had residencies, 24-hour access to the objects that they wanted to look at, no monitoring and no mediation through a, a curator. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, why would we think that somebody would destroy anything, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's absurd, right? So, for me, this, this question of, of having faith in the guests uh, was really important and making sure that they were happy they weren't in some horrible cubbyhole of a hotel and then coming to do research, but that they could actually... It was nourishing in all respects. And talking of nourishing, then, you had an abrupt departure from, from that museum, but it led to a different idea around museums, which you, and you call it the Metabolic Museum? Well, I've always been interested in, in the idea of the organ, not necessarily a bodily organ or a bodily function, but the idea that as a curator you develop a platform that is necessary, that is vital. And an organ is vital. Clearly, if you remove an organ, then your body's not working. 
so whether it's publishing organs or the idea that the collection could be a series of organs, the, the matter of black lives, to put it in more contemporary language, I find very compelling. And to kind of try and match the body of the public, the body of the visitor, our bodies, with a body of a collection. I mean, it's actually a language that is used. One speaks of the corpus of a collection, the corpus of an institution. And so the possibility of changing the space, of changing our behavior within the museum, of introducing tables wherever I could, recognizing the fragility of the collection and of its interpretations, that was really why I began to think of the metabolic I was also curious about the relationship between this kind of acquisition of materials from other cultures and the organ trade. I mean, you know, the safari hunters and the organ hunters. There's not a lot of difference between it. It's, it's a strange analogy, I admit, but there's something there that led me then to work on the museum as a, a location that, that was fragile, that was like bodies that haven't been looked after properly and given back to where they belong. Clémentine Delis there talking to Louise Williams at the recent Narrating the Nation conference, to which we'll return next week. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back next Saturday tea time with more righteous reattributions. Till then, bye now. <laughs>